Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read from verse uh, 18. Before we read that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's ministry and giving to us the Word of God, that the real author behind the human author is the Holy Spirit, and we're going to hear his voice. We pray that he would also illumine our minds to grasp and understand what we read and what we hear preached. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Let's hear the Word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. question before us this morning is a question that is riddling our society at many levels, and it's a question of identity. It's a question of how you as an individual self-identify to those that you come in contact with with the world. And you will immediately realize, of course, that in our world today, that very subject and those very discussions are a matter of uh, extreme debate and anxiety for numbers of people within our society. But I want to suggest to you this morning, from this passage of Scripture, that there is a way of self-identifying and a way of seeing ourselves that transcends all the other suggestions or models or ways of seeing that are on the table for debate and discussion in our society today. One that I think you will find more satisfying than any other, one that you will find goes to the very root of what you are as a being, a creature made in the image of God and redeemed by Jesus Christ. You'll notice in this passage that there are two parts to the passage. You will have noticed that from language that's repeated in verse 18, you have not come. And then again in verse 22, but you have come. And there are two different destinations described. One is Mount Sinai, the place where Israel received the law from God. And the other is Mount Zion, and uh, the place where God reconciled the world to himself because Jesus Christ died in Jerusalem. Mount Sinai was a terrifying place to be. God had brought Israel out of Egypt. Uh, there they'd been for a hundred years, 400 years. God had called them through Abraham. 
They'd taken them into Egypt, and there in Egypt they'd multiplied in number, probably. Uh, so current sources are suggesting as many Israelites as there were Egyptians. And uh, that body of, a coherent body of people within the nation was frightening to the leaders of the nation. And so uh, they were dealt with as slaves as a way of handling them and keeping them under control and so on. And then they were delivered from Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. God took them through the Red Sea. It was a dramatic and a dramatic as well as traumatic experience to be led through the Red Sea. It etched itself on the racial memory of all the Israelites from then on. God immediately, having taken them through the Red Sea, brings them to Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. And there they camped around the base of this mountain. And there for the very first time in their history, God was seen and heard. It was a terrifying experience. There was fire and smoke. There was earthquake. And in particular, there was a terrifying voice that was heard to speak. They recognized what the voice was saying. This thundering voice, it seemed, that spoke above the, above the roar of the storm and above the, the tumult and, and, uh, and the, the earthquake. This voice spoke ten words. The ten words we know as the Ten Commandments. And it was the voice that terrified the people. It made the people go to Moses and say, Moses, we don't want God speaking to us anymore. We understand what he's saying, but we don't want him to speak anymore. Will you, will you become the mediator? Will you go up the mountain and talk to God yourself on our behalf and tell him not to talk to us? It was a terrifying experience because God was speaking his law. And it doesn't matter who we are, the law of God always finds us. And always holding up a mirror to our character, into our deepest flaws in our nature, the law of God always condemns us. The law tells us how good God is. The law uncovers even the most indiscriminate, in, in clear, unclear areas of our lives, those, those, those fractures in our, in our being and in our existence, minute. He discovers, the law of God discovers those things and exposes them and invariably leaves us condemned. That's why they were terrified. Well, that, that power, that shock and awe experience of God, terrifying, etched itself on the memory of the Jewish people, of the people of Israel. I mean, Moses himself was terrified. It says here that he trembled. In Deuteronomy 9, we hear this, we read this. Here's Moses' words. I was afraid that the anger that the Lord bore against you, Israel, was so fierce that he would destroy you. Moses was terrified when he heard the law of God and he saw the behavior of the people of Israel. He was terrified 
that that would spell the end of Israel and the end of him as a man of God. Mount Sinai, then, is a place where God revealed himself in shock and awe, in light and power. It was a show to beat all shows. Mount Zion, on the other hand, which is to be found in Jerusalem, Mount Zion represents the second and last great demonstration of the presence of God. But this time, not in shock and awe, not in thunder and lightning, not in terrifying condemnation, but in human flesh. When the Son comes and He comes in our human flesh, and He says, I have come into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world through me might be saved. These are the two contrasts. You go to Mount Sinai, you're condemned. You come to Jesus Christ, and you are pardoned. And it's these two realities that lie behind the two parts of the text. You have not come, he writes to these Christian people, you have not come to Mount Sinai to be condemned. You have come to Mount Zion to be accepted, reconciled, adopted, and to become a citizen of Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, when the author speaks to his Christian hearers, both then and now, he makes this statement about them. You have come, he says. You've come the way of acceptance. You've come to God, to God, and to have a relationship with God. He's talked about this earlier in the book. He's talked about the fact that now, through Jesus Christ, because he's come into the world, we now come to God with boldness. We come with confidence. We're not among those who, like the Israelites at Mount Sinai, shrink back, but we come in faith. That is, in faith in Jesus, placed in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Now, what does he mean then by Zion, this Mount Zion? Does he mean that mountain in Jerusalem? It's a small little mountain in Jerusalem where, where the temple was built and where uh, David had his royal palace. Is that what we mean? Do we mean that physical location there in Jerusalem in Israel today? Now, throughout the Old Testament, you will find references to Mount Zion in a religious sense. And one of the things you will notice that recurs over and over again in all of the re many of the references to Mount Zion is a reference to the altitude of Mount Zion. I've said that it's a small hill in Jerusalem. Even compared to the small hills of Scotland, it would be a small hill. Scotland's hills, what we venture to call mountains, are nothing but pimples in comparison with the Rockies. I, I, I admit that, okay? I just <laughs> freely admit that, because uh, I'm generous that way, as you know. 
Well, that's giving you a clue as to what to think about when you think about Zion. You're not to think about Mount Zion topographically, but you are to think of it theologically. That's the, that, that's the point of it all. So Zion becomes the place where the children of Israel see the, the dwelling of God there. It's the place to which the tribes of Israel went up. They go up to Zion and they gather there to God. You can see this in some of the great Psalms. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Describing its elevation, its exaltation, its altitude. It is, a, it is enormous. It is enormously high. The whole world can look to it, the psalmist says. And he goes on to expound on that. He says, this city of the great king within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress that you may tell the next generation that this God, our God, is forever and ever. In other words, God identifies himself, his presence, his royal rule, his fortress, his place that he establishes as a place of safety and security for his people. He identifies all of these in the code word, Zion, Mount Zion. The Psalms repeatedly echo this thought, that those who dwell in Zion are forever blessed with the blessing of God himself because of God's presence there. In Psalm 87, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And as the pilgrims went up to Zion to come and worship God, they would sing things like this from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yea, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house singing your praise. Zion stands for the place where God lives. Zion is bigger than the whole world. Zion is the place that all of God's people gather when they're going up to have company with God himself. When Israel built its temple under Solomon, the worship of Israel reached its zenith, its highest point, when the, the temple was finished. And from that point onwards, there is a steady decline. From Solomon's time, there is a steady decline. You can read about this in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And the prophets who were addressing Israel were addressing Israel for their disobedience to God and their rebellion against God and their misuse and abuse of the temple worship for putting the trust in the temple, the physical building, rather than in God. For using it like a magic incantation, saying the temple, the temple, the temple, and thinking merely by repeating the name that everything would be all right, 
despite everything that was wrong with them and wrong with the nations round about them. And repeatedly, the prophets would come to Israel and say, the temple was only a signal. It was only a sign. It was only ever something to get your attention, to make you think and talk and pray about something far greater. Isaiah, writing to the people of his day, says in Isaiah chapter 2 that it will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and shall say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion goes the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In other words, Zion comes to be code for the presence of God, the temple of God, the throne of God, the fortress of God. And not only that, it becomes a code for the bride of God. God says in Isaiah 54, or it's said of God, you, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Zion stands for the husband of his people. The Holy One of Israel. The redeemer, the God of the whole earth. And he paints this amazing picture of the windows of a, of a dovecot where the doves have been out flying and doing what doves do during the day, at, off in pairs, uh, coming to my backyard, actually, uh, it seems. And here at the end of the day, they're going home and they're flocking towards the windows of the dovecot from all over the world. And it's the picture that Isaiah paints of people from every nation for the furthermost bounds of civilized, the civilized world, the, the islands off the coastlands to earth's remotest ends who are coming to Zion. Gentiles, the nations, the world of men and women and boys and girls who are outside of Christ flocking to Zion, the city of our God, flying like a cloud and like doves to their windows for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he's made you beautiful. In the New Testament, the language of Zion finds its culmination in Christ himself and in his church. The end of the Bible, we get the key to unlock all these passages. In Revelation chapter 21, John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. As his, as their God. Zion represents the Church Catholic, 
Zion represents the new creation, the holy temple, the chosen people, the royal bride, the heavenly city that God is creating, comprising all of his people on earth and in heaven. The church of God, the church of Christ, indwelt by God, by his Holy Spirit, is rooted in eternity and manifested in time. The Catholic Church, which is the Christian Church that we profess in our creed, is mostly invisible. It's mostly invisible. It is visible in its local expression as it is this morning in this room where we as God's church are visibly present. But the church is mostly invisible. So as we came to be present with one another in this room this morning, as we came to be present to each other and present to God, we are present to that invisible company of God's people, his Zion, his community, his society, those whom he is gathering out of the world and gathering to himself in Christ. We gather to them. You know that there are, there are those who pray to the saints. <clears throat> and that's a kind of extrapolation from a very real reality that the church has always recognized. That when we come to God, we come into the communion of the saints. We meet with all the saints who from their labors rest. When we come to God in worship, we enter an eternal moment where we are present in this room visibly to each other. But we are present in the presence of God for whom it is the eternal now. And the God who is present with us has present with him all of God's people from Adam and Eve to the last people who will be on planet earth when Jesus Christ comes back again. All the saints of the past and the future and the present from all over the world present at this very moment in the presence of God. We're never alone when we worship. That's why it doesn't matter whether you're here with the several hundred people in this room or whether you're watching and you're with two or three people. Where two or three are gathered in my name, says Jesus, there I am in the midst of them. The numbers don't matter because we have billions of people worship here every Sunday morning with us when we come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what the author is saying here. And he's been describing this in chapter 11. He's been describing what is it like for the believer to live his life here below? What is it like to be on this journey that is like a wilderness experience very often? We're like the children of Israel going through the wilderness, dependent day by day on God for the manna to, to sustain us, from the water to sustain us, the water of life to sustain us. 
But we haven't reached the promised land yet. We're going there. We're headed there. But we're not there yet. What is it sustains us? In the trials and circumstances of our lives. Well, we learn from chapter 11 that those believers endured and sojourned here looking for a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, a better country, that is a heavenly one, a heavenly homeland, the lasting city that is to come. The church on earth is already part of Zion, the city of God. Now what you see the movement in our text, you have come, he says, I said this is a, the a language of approach and worship. It, it begins when we very first, for the very first time, approach God. How are we to approach God? This book has been telling us we approach God through Jesus Christ. And that if we come through the man Christ Jesus to God, we will gain acceptance. We will gain entrance into the presence of God. We may come boldly to him. We don't need to shy away. We don't need to retreat and hide. We don't need to ask somebody else to talk to God for us. Moses, would you talk to God for us? We don't need that. Why? We have a greater than Moses. We come to God through Jesus. He is our mediator. We come boldly to him. That's how it begins. The Christian life begins when we come to God for the very first time through Jesus Christ. Have you come to God through Jesus Christ? For the very first time. But what Christian worship is, is the repeated gathering of God's people together, to come together into the presence of God, to draw our attention to the fact that we are never, this is not an individualistic religion, this is a corporate religion. We come as the church, we come as the people of God, and we have access together into the presence of God. You have come, he says, to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's saying that this is a reality right now. When you come to worship, this is where you belong. You belong to Zion's city. That is your identity. Here's how the the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, All things are gathered into one head in Christ, both things that are in heaven and things that are on earth. In Christ, right now, God has reconciled all things to himself, whether they are things on earth or things in heaven. That's Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. So the church, as we gather and worship, what happens is that the church militant join with the church triumphant in worshiping God. Now you see, there's a contrast there. The church militant, what does that mean? Well, that's you and I. Right now, the church militant is on earth It's not wrestling with flesh and blood. It's wrestling with the principalities and the powers and the authorities of this dark world. It's wrestling with the devil who is a liar and an adversary and a deceiver and a murderer from the beginning. 
We're wrestling with the world, that is, with its agenda, with a worldly church, with a worldly agenda, with a culture that is in an, an, an antithetical to the things of God. And we're struggling against these things. All the time we are, as individuals, but as a church, we are struggling with those who scandalize us, criticize us, ostracize us. We are the church militant, still in the battlefield. But here we have the church triumphant. That is, there are more people right now in the church triumphant than there are in the church militant. More people who have entered their reward. We are walking by faith. They're not walking by faith. Because the very first gift that God gives to his people when they pass from here to there, from this life to that life, the very first gift he gives them is the thing that they have longed for so much while they've been here. He gives them the gift of seeing him, of seeing God in Christ. He gives them immediately that beatific vision. He enables them immediately to see what before they simply trusted in. Faith becomes sight. When we leave here and are with Christ, which is by far the best. Mount Zion is the place where we see God. Mount Zion is the place where we are in his immediate presence. Mount Zion is a fortified city where we have absolute peace and security. We come together to remind ourselves that whatever people do to us, we are nonetheless fortified and garrisoned by God himself. And nothing is going to alter our status. Though the devil throws everything he has at us, because we belong to Mount Zion, because we belong to God, we are forever secure. You have come to Mount Zion, to God's holy habitation, the seat of his majestic throne, the sight of his precious promises, the source of his glorious gospel, the object of his eternal love, the joy of the whole earth, the fountain of of full salvation. And you have come to the place where there is a confluence of all gospel promises and gospel privileges as they have reached fruition and fullness in Christ himself. You've come to the city of the living God, the city that belongs to God, the city that God founded, He built his church. He protects his church. No creature can destroy his church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. It is indwelt by God. Although God is in everything, he has promised that he would be covenantally present to his people in the church. This city is ruled by God. He is its only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. This city is peopled by God. We were once strangers and foreigners, but we've been made fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. 
These inhabitants of Zion who are citizens there have access to all the immunities and privileges that come to citizenship in Zion. Think of the immunities. Think of the immunities to which you are heir by being virtue of the fact you are a citizen of Zion, the city of the living God. No condemnation. No separation. Famine, danger, sword, Satan cannot separate you from the love of God. You are heir to all the immunities and privileges. Privileges of seeing God, of coming to God, of praying to God, of speaking to God, of hearing from God. All of those privileges are yours. This city is peopled by God. You enjoy the liberty of the children of God. And this city is animated by God. He is the living God. That is, the living God is distinct from dead idols. The living God is distinct from creatures who derive their life from him. His life is from and therefore in himself. He exists by and in himself. He is the source of life and power. He has all life and power in himself. He animates everything. And he animates his people. He gives his people life, eternal life. He is the living God. And we've come not only to the city of the living God, we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. The writer has contrasted things that are earthly and things that are heavenly. Mount Sinai was all about the earth. It was all about earthly things and things that can be touched, as you can see from verse 18. But our high priest, Jesus, did not make a sacrifice in an earthly tent or an earthly tabernacle or temple. He is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is now a minister in the, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He entered heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We belong, says Paul, using an an allegory as he contrasts Jerusalem in Israel and Jerusalem which is above. And he says, we don't belong to Jerusalem that is below, we belong to Jerusalem that is above. And that whereas Jerusalem below is subject to the law and therefore in bondage to the law, we are free. And Jerusalem above is our mother. There's no salvation beyond her or outside of her. The church is what brings you to birth. The church is what nourishes you in your Christian life. The church is a society of heaven. Our citizenship is there. Our wealth is there. Our investments are there. Our reward is there. Our inheritance is there, reserved in heaven for us. We self-identify this morning as citizens of heaven. We're glad to be citizens of America. We owe her very much indeed at a human level. We long for her peace and prosperity to last for generations to come. But we are citizens of another place. We are dual citizens. We are citizens of Jerusalem that is above. Never be persuaded 
that being heavenly minded is of meaning means of being no earthly use. Being heavenly minded is the key to earthly usefulness. You read the life of William Wilberforce, who championed the ending of slave trade, of the slavery in, in the United in Britain, and who labored for it for over twenty years to get the British government at great expense to abolish the slave trade. It would be equivalent to the American government abolishing the arms trade in terms of its cost, equivalently. It was a miracle. Here was a man who was very much aware of the heavenly inheritance. It was the heavenly inheritance, the idea of being in the presence of the heavenly one and the heavenly horse that drove him on that lifelong mission to end a very earthly issue. When we know that our inheritance and that we have come to this Mount Zion, we are saying that we belong to a reality that is far more real than this, this passing world. You look around you and you see shadow lands. You meet someone you haven't met for five years and you see they've changed a little bit. You meet someone you haven't seen for 30 years. You see they've changed a lot. You haven't. They have. I find it all the time. The reality is we live in a passing world. The, 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 the sun is going to set for the last time on this universe. It will be dissolved by fire. Renewing fire. But everything will be dissolved. The message of Revelation is there will come a day when great Babylon, which represents all the commercial, industrial, financial, and political influences in the world, Babylon will fall. And the rich and the powerful and the famous, and the movers and the shakers, as well as the weak and the nobodies, are all going to be terrified when it falls. And down out of heaven will come what? Zion, the city of our God. Only Zion will remain. And if of Zion's city, we through grace members are, let the world deride or pity. We will glory in her name. Fading is the worldling's treasure, all her boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting pleasure. None but Zion's children know. Father, we pray this morning that we would be able to identify ourselves, as the Bible does, as those who belong to Zion, the city of our God. Perhaps, as we've read these words, you have come. There's someone who feels, well, I have not yet come to that place. I have yet to have dealings with Jesus Christ. I have yet to come to know him for myself. We pray that this morning such a person would reflect on that and would come to him 
and ask him for the grace of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of their understanding, to grasp what are the depths and length and height and breadth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.